Welcome to Exploring Possibilities. I'm your host, Cheryl Sitz. Since 2012, Mario Rosales of Tech Life Balance and I have been sharing conversations with enlightened change agents, raising the vibration on our planet. It is the intention of this show to explore possibilities and shift perspectives in holistic, spiritual ways. You'll hear how experts discover and share their deepest passions to make a bigger difference in the world. You can also subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. If you do that, please rate the show so other people will find us. We'll introduce our next guest in just a moment. Have you ever gone to a social media seminar and you have the online experts telling you, get a blog, get a website, get on social media, all this other stuff. By the time you're done with that seminar, that online expert is very good at frying your brain. (laughs) The funny part is you come back home, you get in front of the computer, and you're lost. Hi, I am Mario with Tech Life Balance. I see this all the time. You spend so much money and still don't know what is going on with your online presence. And you know, you probably don't need all of that. Let me go ahead and translate geek to english for you and show you what you really need because you don't need it all. You probably only need a few components. You have a great message out there and I would like to hear it and I definitely want to help you put it out there. I am Mario Rosales with TechLifeBalance.net. I produce this podcast because I love distributing messages. Let me help you distribute your message. Hi, it's your host, Cheryl Sitz. And when I'm not doing this podcast, I enjoy offering live or remote coaching sessions to help my clients explore their possibilities. Maybe you have a physical pain and you've never really gotten to the emotional root cause. Wouldn't it be nice to be free of that? We can do that together. We can also explore what it is you really want or what's really holding you back and get rid of that too. There's lots we can do together. Contact me, CherylSits.com. Now on with the show. Our show now reaches several thousand listeners, saturating Montgomery County and the Texas Gulf Coast and stretching from there across the United States and world. Let me ask you, wouldn't you like to reach some of these people and tell them about your products and services? Contact me, journeyofpossibilities.com. We'll work out a schedule and a price that fits your needs. Wow, I'm sounding just a little bit nasally today. I got to tell you, in Texas, we've got 25 degrees one day and 85 the next, and typical Texas winter down here, but uh, all of us kind of sound like this, so bear with me today. Our guest is very special, and you'll enjoy listening. Marcia Hale is a social scientist interested in conflict and change especially what drives conflict within and between people, organizations, and systems. Marcia has studied inequality, identity, and diversity for over a decade, using this knowledge for conflict transformation. As a mediator, she facilitates victims and offenders in restorative justice cases. She works similarly with families, communities, organizations, and other social systems. Teaching this practice and building conflict resolution systems within organizations, she creates more collaborative, creative environments. Don't we all need more collaboration and creativity? Welcome, Marcia. Hi, Cheryl. It's so good to be on your show. Thank you so much for bringing me on. It's such a pleasure to have you. And I know this is a little different than usually. We have a lot of holistic practitioners, but the mission of this show is actually exploring possibilities and shifting perspectives in holistic, spiritual ways. And I think that everything that you do around your vision for more equality and what you do to help people 
transform conflict into more peaceful situations that growth can emerge from. All of that's about us living together respectfully, sustainably, holistically, and spiritually. So I think it's a perfect fit to have you on the show. Thank you for coming. Oh, it's so good to be here. And um, yeah, I agree completely. In fact, I found, you know, conflict work to be a very profound form of um, meditation. And through working both with people, but also with myself in conflict. Um, You know, I think a lot of the major kind of spiritual philosophies and systems in the world um, can all be found right there in the seat of a conflict scenario. You're so right. And you know, I hear people saying they wish they could fix their life so they didn't have conflict and stress. But isn't conflict where we grow and learn and stretch and expand ourselves? That is exactly how I've started to orient myself. (laughs) I am a very conflict averse person. Um, You know, I... I have very thin skin, and so I, I feel things very deeply. And for most of my life, I think I was really interested in solving conflict. I did not like to see it, feel it. I don't like to see or feel people suffering. And so I had a lot of ideas about you know, how to solve the conflicts, both in my life and in the world. Um, and it only came about 10 years ago, this real respect and reverence for conflict as the doorway, um, as a gateway both into myself and into the world that is universal. And there's so much, you know, absolute energy there. Uh, It's such a potent force. Um, And then it just gets interesting in how we work with it. And so absolutely, I agree with everything you're saying. It's it's become a friend, but for a long time, it, it just made me incredibly uncomfortable and I wanted to solve it. (laughs) I understand. You know, I think a lot of us, our initial response is to shy away from conflict. We don't want to have those difficult conversations. I'm also a mediator. So there's a lot of common ground here between Mm. you and I that we can talk about that. I know a lot of people tell me, well, I don't want to say that. I don't, I don't want to hurt somebody Mm. I love, especially those crucial conversations with people we really love. But that's really where our truth can emerge and we can be vulnerable and we can actually start to bond at a, at a deeper level. Wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I agree completely. Um, the easy conversations and the, the, the easy conversations and almost, uh, you know, surface interactions, I think that are most comfortable. I don't think add a whole lot of depth, at least to my life. Um, and being able to know that I can go in and have difficult conversations with people that I love and help other people have difficult conversations. Um, enriches my life exponentially. Yes. Yes, I can imagine it does. Well, I want to take a step back and get to know you a little bit. I've had the pleasure of meeting you a few years ago. And then like many people that don't live in the same immediate area, we stay in touch a lot through social media. And some of the things that you've posted around inequality in particular really grabbed my attention. And and I felt like we just had to have you on the show and have this conversation so where did all that come from for you as a, as a woman? Did it start when you were younger? How did you get this fire fueled in you to want to make a difference in that area? Mm, it did. It started when I was very, very young. I grew up on a farm um, in rural Alabama. And, you know, it was a setting that was marked, I think, by two very specific things. One was that that environment I experienced a lot of racism and sexism within, and it was very overt racism and sexism um, and unreflective. In other words, um, you know, there's this kind of notion of entitlement. And when people you know, feel entitled to 
hold themselves above someone else and entitled to, um, you know, cruelty in a way that possibly in much of the country until very recently, we weren't seeing a lot of, you know, we saw more institutionalized forms of racism and sexism. Um, so having these overt forms show up in my early life, I think left me no doubt or question as to the inequality of the world that I lived in. And it definitely instilled in me a big driver to want to change that because again, it just felt like cruelty to me when I was very young. I didn't understand, you know, history or politics or economics or, you know, social systems. And it just, it felt, it felt like cruelty and suffering. And so it instilled in me a driver to want to change it. Um, but then there was also this kind of lack of people around, right? So it was a farm in rural Alabama. I mean, there were people around that, uh, person-to-animal ratio is definitely slanted more towards animals. <laughs> and um, I really wanted to work with animals for most of my life until I was probably, you know, 13. But as, as a kid, I wanted to work with animals. Um, I had a strong connection to, like, chimpanzees and especially gorillas. And so when Rwanda happened, I was 13, um, you know, when the three-month or uh, when the three-month massacre happened. I was 13 years old. And it was the beginning, I believe, of my systems thinking because I just realized that when the people around the gorillas are, you know, going through this kind of suffering and this kind of intensity, there was not much that I could do to help gorillas. Um, right. And so I think those th those two drivers have really shaped my life. You know, first of all, the um, clear and present reality of the isms of the world, and then also how things are connected. Um, it's true. Mm. What's happening to any of us is affecting the rest of us, whether it's racism, sexism. It sounds like this pipe dream in one sense to say, oh, I want everything to be treated equal. But yet the cruelty to anyone is felt by others around them. And so we just continue to have this plaguing us back and forth. Is that kind of what you were feeling too? Absolutely. And, you know, the idea of inequality and equality are interesting because, you know, from an academic standpoint, I've spent, you know, some years now kind of in the university setting where, you know, what is justice? What is equality can be debated from now until the end of time. And I personally just step out of that whole conversation because at some level, I'm not sure how useful it is. Um, I don't think that we're ever going to live in a world where we all have the exact same amounts of things. We're obviously not going to have the exact same personalities and character types and, um, you know, hopes and dreams. So diversity is beautiful, but equality in terms of um, access and equality in terms of um, a lack of barriers and a lack of, you know, the prejudices and social barriers uh, that keep people um, locked into situations in life that they can't get out of, that are marked by, you know, economic hardship and lack of political access and social brutality. And I certainly believe just to, you know, um, broaden out your point a bit more that if I'm being cruel to someone else, there's an aspect of me that is really hurting and really suffering and being cruel to myself. And so seeing brutality and cruelty in the world, I think, is certainly evidence not only of the people who are receiving that suffering, but certainly the people who are giving it as well. 
Absolutely. I agree with you. Well, one of the things that really flagged me, I, I remember the day that I reached out and said, how would you like to be on my show? And that was, <laughs> you shared the video about, it was fascinating to me. You took the idea of welfare in terms of housing and with that video that you found and turned it on end because what it shared was be careful who you say is on welfare because there's different kinds of welfare depending on what class you're in and it talked about the tax breaks for for mortgages and things as being another form of housing welfare and I hadn't heard that before I found that fascinating so I think it would be interesting what you're describing being in this academic setting and just looking at all the different ways we could look at what we call welfare or access for whom, who is this good for, and who is that good for? What has really resonated for you is the thing that you want to work on next? What what inequality really gets under your skin now that you want to address? Ah, wow. So <laughs> that's a big question. I think I'm working through several main corridors. And one is um, water. And that might sound kind of strange talking about inequality, but, um, you know, access to water is crucial for not just humankind, but, you know, the well-being of ecosystems and water moving forward. I mean, we've already seen it in the last five to 10 years and especially, you know, the uh, war in Syria, um, science for whatever that's worth, but, you know, academics and scientists have drawn very strong connections between uh, drought in Syria and the sparks of armed conflict. And we're seeing all around the world how basins that many large cities and rural areas rely on, these are under, underground basins that hold massive amounts of water, um, have been depleting rapidly over the last 10 years, which basically just means that the surface water that we're all usually dealing with uh, is not enough to go around in some places, or it's not enough to go around in the way that it's being used. And so people have been adapting by pumping from their aquifers. Uh, but now these aquifers are getting depleted, and a lot of the water in some of them is fossil water. So it fell in a different climate regime. It's not going to be replaced. Um, and one of the basins I've spent a lot of time studying is the uh, Tigris and Euphrates Basin that's shared by Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. Mm -hmm. um, and so in instances like that, we just see how, you know, the way that the world has been constructed uh, post-colonialism gives some entities, some states, huge amounts of power and influence, while others are left with very little. And that's going to become more and more intense just in terms of basic resources like water and therefore food. And so I'm really interested in water systems. Um, however, I'm also interested in uh, cities and in corporations. And I know that might seem like a pretty big jump in departure, um, but water in cities, you know, are very connected, obviously. Uh, more than half of the world's population lives in cities now. And so the way that cities process and use their water um, and the types of governance structures that can be put together to allow people to have uh, some agency over those decisions um, is, is pretty significant. And so I'm interested also in working with cities and corporations, organizations, companies in thinking about um what they're reifying. And, you know, this is a term that I think until 
pretty recently has been held by academics and specifically Marxists, but it's such an important term. It's really an amazing uh, way to think about the world. And it basically just means that the intangible gets made tangible through processes that we use uh, within our social systems. And so something like inequality, social inequality, economic inequality, basically gets made real, it gets made tangible, and then it's recreated through um, institutions like our education system or, um, you know, our prison system. And so I'm excited about working with companies to think about the processes that they are engaged in and the kind of structures of reality, the way that they think about the world, the way that they think about reality, and how the disparities or the conflicts within those belief systems are being recreated through the work that they do. I can totally see you bringing companies and city officials and political officials together and mediating some of these conversations that need to be taking place to to prioritize our water crisis where it is not yet. And for many others, like I'm just involved here at the county level in Texas, where I live, Montgomery County, and water is a conversation that's taking place in different arenas that I'm in. But the big question tends to be, where do we start? How do we make a difference now? What is for most common people, what can we do, you know, so there's, there's at the family level, what families can do. And then there's within the communities, how to bring these key players together. I really think we need to start start having more of those models rolling out of how communities can adapt a program to their local needs where they can start to make some big shifts and plan for these water shortages. Are you seeing any of that kind of stuff happening? Because I know things are a lot are in a different place in California than they are in Texas on some of these issues. Mm. Well, water has been a, a huge issue. I think as it's been, you know, in Texas for the last uh, five years in California, we've been going through uh, what many are calling the most intense drought on record. Right. And it has shifted a lot of the ways that not just individuals, but the way that the system thinks about water. Um, and I say the system because, you know, we have a very, very complex <laughs> water system here that's uh, made up of various types of water regulators and providers. Um, and so we have a lot of water wholesalers. And then, um, you know, we have this huge system of water importation. Um, there was a scholar named Steve Erie who called Los Angeles the aqueduct empire, you know, and so the whole thing has been built on the premise that we're going to bring water in from other areas. And as, you know, these various forces from climate change to, um, you know, our growing knowledge of how aquifers and groundwater work, as those things are evolving, the city and the county have become less comfortable relying on outside sources. And so there's a lot of talk now around self-reliance here mm -hmm. in Southern California, which again is such a, you know, it's a paradigm shift because this is the aqueduct empire. Now all of a sudden we're talking about um, self-reliance, um, which has different meanings to different people. And one of the, um, so one of the things that I do is I kind of crawl through systems and I try to understand them and I look for the barriers to change and, um, you know, format different ways of being able to address and deal with conflict. And so the water system here in Southern California was a really interesting case to do that with because um, we have this new 
paradigm or this new tagline of self-reliance. And it was fascinating to go in and talk with policymakers and water managers and, um, you know, expert uh, scientists that are working on these issues and get to the range of meanings held within this one term. Um, so self-reliance for some means, you know, local water, very specifically. For others, it means um, trying not to bring water in from other areas because it damages ecosystems. So it's really more of an environmentally based agenda. And then for a third group, self-reliance is all about reliability, meaning as long as we can get that water reliably, it really doesn't matter where it comes from, but we're just, you know, concerned about city growth and being able to maintain the growth that we already have. Um, and so in terms of involving community members, I guess I would say it's interesting to look at how complex it is on the level of officials and paid employees who are working on these issues. Um, and then for community members to come in, there's a very real opportunity, I think, to help the officials and the paid employees to clarify their own agendas. Um, a lot of the work here in Southern California around water has been driven by community members and by activist groups. Um, and just on the level of transparency, you know, we used to have uh, water buffaloes here in California. I'm not sure if that's a term in Texas. No, I go ahead no. and elaborate what you mean. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think it's, um, I think it's a pretty Los Angeles based, um, <laughs> based term. Um, but you know, these water buffaloes were essentially the old guard of the city. So they were people often who had held, you know, power through business or other forms of politics that then made all of the decisions about water from where it came from to how it's priced to who has the ability to be able to provide water, mm -hmm. um, you know, in what context and what form, who's going to regulate it. And that entire process was made obscured to the outsider looking in. And so a lot of the, you know, activism and community-based efforts here in Southern California, at least in the 60s and 70s and the 80s, were about making those processes more transparent. And I think that's probably the case in most water systems around the country. Yeah. You know, special districts are ubiquitous anymore, and they have a lot of power without a lot of oversight. And water is one of the main arenas, I think, that special districts and these, um, you know, less transparent forms and processes of governing resources, water think is ground zero for a lot of this to play out. And it's only going to become more so because it's such a, it's an invaluable resource and people are trying to put price tags on it, of course, and um, profit from it. And so what's going on behind the closed doors needs to be made, I think, more, more transparent, probably in most of our cities and rural water systems. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that's what's kind of happening in many arenas right now. I think we're being awakened and jolted into consciousness by different circumstances so that we'll pay more attention, mm. get more involved, notice what's going on. Because for many of us, you know, we just, we wake up, we turn the faucet, we flip a switch for the lights, turn a faucet for the water. We're so far removed from what's actually happening at a, at a bigger level. We can get so caught up in our day-to-day -day lives 
that we really don't realize the impact that we're making, how we're wasting water, how we're wasting electricity, how we could be more conscientious with our use of it, how we could get more involved in what's really going on to get it to us in the first place, and how that situation's playing out. You know, I, I was a lot more aware of things when I was in college than I tend to be out here. I can follow as much media as I can, but even that we tend to get inundated with a lot of media and we can't really keep up necessarily with all the issues. So how can you recommend that the average person listening to this show can be more conscious and get more involved in their day-to-day life? Uh, You know, the compassion fatigue dynamic, I think is so real on the planet right now. And I've been thinking a lot about this because um, as resources, especially become more and more stretched on the planet as our population grows. Um, I think there's going to be, of course, increased competition. And the way this shows up in families and the way that this shows up in communities, I've come to understand the more that I work with families and communities in conflict, especially how important it is to have um, to have a network and to have that family system or community system that you can rely on. Um, I come from a very small family and again, you know, grew up on a farm. And so a lot of those larger community dynamics, I didn't, I didn't understand how valuable those systems and networks are. Um, and so looking at the world and inequality and, you know, violence through that lens of understanding that if you're, if people are working from a zero sum game model where, we need to secure this resource for our family at the expense of someone else's family or at the expense of someone else's community. You know, the violence on the planet makes a lot of sense. And I think this is a little bit of a jump. And I'm sorry, I'm, I'm still kind of putting this thought together, but um, the international systems and institutions that have been created over the last hundred years are so important. And, you know, the UN is less than 100 years old. It's really the first time in history that humanity has decided to come together across the globe and at least, you know, within the formal mission statement of this, you know, system, we're we're going to care about everyone equally and we're going to um, be concerned with what's happening for someone halfway around the world from me. Um, And the fact that these international systems haven't, been as successful maybe as we would like, I don't think means that they need to go away. I think it means that they just need to be reformed. And unfortunately, it seems like on the planet now we're seeing a lot of push for, you know, nationalism and to devolve back into, you know, the nation state or the community level, the local level. And while the local level is very important, um, I think it's just as important to make sure that we're keeping the larger regional and international systems in place that are able to kind of mediate for us at a larger level. Because if we're concerned with every single issue on the planet all the time, I do think that that's going to lead to compassion fatigue very quickly. It can be a a big thing to think about this at a global level when for many of us, it's more about what, what difference can I make and what can I do about it? And I think we tend to Maslow's hierarchy, right? It's about our needs at the family Mm. level first. And if we're already talking about water scarcity, people do go into a panic. So being from the conflict resolution side for you and bringing peace of mind and peace to the community, how would you suggest that people can reconcile all this for themselves? Yes, I work in two primary areas. Um, 
in terms of awareness and then conflict transformation. So to speak a little bit more to your earlier question about, you know, what can individual people do within this landscape of so many global issues and local issues all playing out simultaneously, um, I think it is really important to educate ourselves and become aware of the system that we're supporting and the country that we live in. Um, and you mentioned this video that I had posted from a woman named Ananya Roy who does amazing work in terms of unpacking um, systems of inequality, I would say is actually what she does. And, you know, she's naming these different ways in which our system generates inequality, such as the fact that we think of welfare as a handout, basically, that's given to very low-income people, but we don't think of our mortgage tax credit as welfare when it actually is. And in terms of the way, you know, the federal budget is created and constructed, our income tax credits take away from GDP or the larger budget um, to a greater extent, actually, than a more formalized system of overt welfare does. And right. so becoming aware of these different contradictions within the system, I think is really important so that we can understand where other people are coming from. And the dynamic of blaming the victim or shaming the victim is the way I believe that things get entrenched to the point where communities are divided and real violence happens. Yes. And so to take a step back and really try to understand what's happening for other people and I find for myself, you know, the most important question, whenever I start to feel like something has been done to wrong me or I'm suffering some injustice, especially if it's some systemic injustice, is to think about, you know, how lucky I am in so many ways and the privileges that I've been afforded. And if I'm having such a tough time or if I'm having, you know, a challenge working through something because of a systemic injustice, how much more difficult is it for people who don't have the privileges that I've been given? And I find that is a trick that not only puts me back in a place of gratitude, but it also puts me in a place where I'm really searching to understand the world and connect with people, which is how I want to live my life. I want to live my life more connected. And I believe that that also leads to conflict transformation. And that's the second piece. So you know, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I started out thinking about conflict resolution and I've really shifted into a transformation model. And that's one of the reasons that I was so excited to come on your show. <laughs> uh, I know that you are a transformation coach and I find this um, concept or this dynamic so fascinating. And so um, it lands on me, it lands with me in a really uh, significant way. And that's that, you know, through conflict I can transform my consciousness, my awareness, my awareness of myself and the world, and then my relationships. And so thinking about conflict either within my own individual world and my own individual relationships or within the organizations and the companies that I'm involved in or more largely within the world, I feel like it's you know a call to action to greater awareness of myself and the systems that I'm operating within, and then the opportunity to, you know, use those tension points as doorways to transform my relationships. You said that all so well. And I haven't always felt this way. I mean, I was just as eager to get away from conflict as the next person for a long time. But what I've come to understand about my own life is that 
the most tumultuous times, the times of the greatest conflict or the greatest pain or the greatest whatever I had to overcome were also the times of my greatest growth. Once I finally moved through that process, there were the years of running away from aspects of myself. And that, of course, didn't spawn any growth. But the real transformations in my life have come through the conflicts that I have moved through and and allowed myself to go into and explore and grow from. And so there are a lot of people that don't like to hear that expression. Everything happens for a reason, but I, Mm. I don't know that it happens for a reason, but it can happen for a reason. If we look at it as an opportunity instead of a victimhood, there is a chance for growth there and not just for one person, for everybody involved that wants to do that. Isn't that kind of what happens at all mediation tables? It's a place of respect, bringing that respect back. Absolutely. That's been my experience as well. Um, respect and understanding. I mean, I, I, I can't say that I've ever worked with a family or a couple even or any group that didn't have some underneath it all, in the center of it all, there was some yearning to connect, you know, there was some longing to see and be seen. Yes. And so much of the work that I do nowadays, I feel is really just about removing barriers. You know, the beautiful Rumi quote that, you know, yours is not to seek to love, but to remove the barriers to it. I find whether I'm working with a family or with a company that there are these barriers to connecting in the case of the family and often within the case of the company, you know, there's some change they're working towards. There's some, um, you know, new agenda. There's some transformation that that organizational system is trying to undergo, which I believe everything is towards greater connection. You know, that's sort of the underlying energy of it all. And so if I can move in and just remove the barriers, which are often misunderstandings. Um, You know, I told the story of the LA water system earlier and how people have these different understandings of this term self-reliance, which has become the main agenda item here. And so if I can remove the misunderstandings and, you know, clarify the language and clarify the concepts and then provide some tools for working through conflict and for connecting, um, I find that Connection and transformation happens all on its own because those are the forces that are always unraveling in the universe anyway, right? Those are the things that are always occurring. Connection, transformation, evolution, however you want to language it. Yeah, and so just going in and clarifying, removing barriers, uh, providing tools, um, those, those small tweaks make such a significant difference. It's been so fun to see how this show has kind of expanded and then come back together around a centralizing theme because there was a point in the show where I thought, wow, we've talked about water. We've talked about rural America and prejudices. We've talked about it. It seemed to wander all over the place. But what I have heard to be the unifying theme is that you are all about removing barriers, whether they're to communication, whether they're to connection, whether they're to access your driving force seems to be about removing barriers. And I think that's a beautiful mission. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's, it's been, I I feel like I'm always discovering what life is, right? I'm always discovering (laughs) how it is that I am going to move through life. And um, this way of viewing the world through systems has been very significant because um, it ties together seemingly disparate pieces, but that 
is the world that we live in, right? Because yes. everything is connected. Yes. Um, and being able to understand both a water system and a corporate system and harness some principles that are similar to them all, I feel allows for really powerful and significant work because it's working at a level that's deeper than the external structure of whether that's a for-profit company or a non-profit company or an institutionalized um, resource system. Uh, we're working with these kind of fundamental dynamics on the planet and those guys don't change. Exactly. This has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed connecting with you again. And I ask all my guests, there is a parting thought that you'd like to leave us with. So Marcia, do you have a parting thought for us? Uh, all conflict is transformational. And that's, you know, the mantra that I tell myself probably three times a day. <laughs> and so if I can share one of my favorites, I think that that's what it would be. All conflict is transformational and um, it, it's all towards greater connection and greater wholeness. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. I loved being on your show and it was great <laughs> reconnecting with you again. Would you like to be a guest on Exploring Possibilities? Drop me a note at info at journeyofpossibilities.com. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time on Exploring Possibilities.